0: Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. These 18, what's 18 minus 32, y'all? Is that 14? 14? 24? 14. All right, 14. Then 14 verses. I keep wanting to say it, but I'll get my math mixed up. You know what I'm saying? Common Core, that's what I, I've been doing Common Core with Lily so long, I, I don't even know my time facts. You know what I'm saying? That's what this but it's the giving over, right? This is the theme, all right? Um, let's, let's go back. Sarah, Matt, put that chart up real quick. Remember, this is the trajectory of the disintegration of society, all right? This is what Romans 1 puts out for us. It tells us, essentially, that there's been truth suppression, That the God of the cosmos has revealed himself, not just specially to the Christians, to everyone who takes a breath, I've revealed myself. They all know that when they look up, they look out, they look within, that there's something bigger controlling it all, right? And they will all be held for account for suppressing that truth. What happens when you have true suppressions, Romans 1 and 21, then the result of truth suppression is defective reasoning that something happens in you and you stop being able to think in right alignment with the God who created it all. We all become a little bit more ignorant. Sin kills our brain cells. So defective reasoning, the natural byproduct of defective reasoning, is social chaos and disorder we start dishonoring each other in any which and every way we can. Murder, strife, greed, whatever, lies, whatever. It's all inward, self-preservation. And if I gotta hurt you to make sure I take care of me and mine, brother, you might as well consider it's over with. I'm gonna take care of me. True suppression leads to defective reasoning. Defective reasoning leads to social chaos. This is the backdrop. And so, let's exegete verses 24 real quick through 28. It says, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So, one of the consequences, what like I've said, of true suppression is sexual impurity. What is happening here is God says, people are going to be given over to increased and widespread sexual immorality. And the Greek behind immorality um, is is, is really important. Sometimes the version of your Bible says um, um, dishonoring. Um, What is happening, the consequence, is a mutual cheapening of one another's bodies. That's what you need to be thinking about. The dishonoring activity sexually we do with one another, when God gives us over because we suppress his truth, what it does is we start cheapening each other's material worth. Degrading is another synonym for dishonoring, shameful. And actually, in a number of languages, one commentator says, commentator says, um, it's causing someone to be dishonored, right? It's causing someone to be laughed at, causing people to wag their heads, causing people to turn away. This is this idea of shame, like, man, this is not what it's supposed to be. And, and it, it's become a laughing stock in certain cases. This is what God has given us over to. Oh, you don't want to hold to the high esteem I have for your body? Well, then I'm going to make you, since you want to run what you do with your body, I'm going to make your natural outprop something that's dishonorable and shameful. What you need to know let's do a little theology, is that there is not a being, there is not a system of thought, there is not a religion that has a higher view of the material world than Christianity. Let's do some theology, right? One of the things that in the early church they were fighting against was the heresy of Gnosticism that would essentially esteem the immaterial world as all that's true and good, right? And that the material world was bad and that our flesh should be disregarded. Nobody cares about the flesh, but it's all the spiritual world. That's what's the most important thing. Not so with Christianity. You need to know that you are more, your bodies, your, pinch yourself. My literal body is more than just a, a, a case for my soul. It's not worthless. We're not just dirt suits in here. As a matter of fact, in early creedal Christianity, the Apostles' Creed, it's, it's in there for all people. They couldn't even read the whole Bible. But one of the things that they said, I believe in the resurrection of a literal body. God has a high view of your body. And your destiny is not just to be spirits floating around in heaven, but you will be real people in a glorified body walking the new heavens and new earth. Real people, y'all. Real people. With real flesh. That's how high a view God has of the body. And so when he's saying, hey, I'm going to give you over to these shameful, dishonorable activities of your body, what he's trying to do is not shame people. He's trying to say, my guy, I've got such an amazing trajectory for your physical body. And what you are doing for yourself is so low and so far beneath what I've designed it for. Sam Alberry says that regarding sex, no one is more challenging, no one is more dignifying, no one is more satisfying than Jesus. When he, he exposits Matthew 5 not to commit adultery, and I even say that if you even look at a woman lustfully in your heart, um, it's, it's just like you've committed adultery. So he exposits that verse. But one of the things he says is that Jesus says humans have s- such sexual dignity that matters so much to God that he doesn't even want people messing around, even in the privacy of their own minds. Jesus has such a high view of your body and your sexuality that he's forbidding people from even thinking about your body in ways that he's not designed it. That's how much dignity he has for your body and your sexuality. No, they're mine. I don't want you thinking about them in that way because their body's more glorious than that. Have you ever thought about how much he cares for you and your body and how much he thinks of you and your body? Verse 25, they exchange the truth about God for a lie. Worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is praised forever. This is really just a run back of the earlier verses we preached a couple weeks ago. But he heightens it. He adds a preposition, meta, which just means they completely abandon the truth of God. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, I watch these old, Sylvester, I watch these old uh, mafia movies sometimes. You know, all these guys, these little mob bosses, they start talking about who got hit. And he's like, hey, you know, and then Bobby, Bobby Zito, he, he lost his life back in 65. And they all pause. It's God rest his soul. God rest his soul. <laughs> It's like their little moment of sacrality. This is such a crazy, I just had to throw this in there for real. The thought of idol worship and truth suppression and people exchanging the truth of God for lies was so revolting to Paul that Paul just pauses and just say, oh, I got to praise God right now. (laughs) He literally, he's like your grandmama. He's like, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is praised forever. Amen. I got to pause right now and just say that God is the self-existent one, the one who came from nothing ex nihilo. He's immeasurable. He's infinite. He's immutable. God's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. God is filled. He's glorious. He's filled with beauty and majesty. God is perfect. He's holy. He's beside him. There is no other. I got to praise him because he's something different. He's something different. I can't believe you would do the cosmic creator like that. So let me just pause and just put a little praise on it real quick. Paul says, I can't stand for it.
1: I wonder where we are.
0: This is the equivalent of your mama jokes. Bro, you ain't going to be talking about my mama. This is going to be one thing we ain't going to do up in here. Paul says, I can't even bear it. Let me cover this with some due praise. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error. The second consequence of God giving of of the true suppression is shameful lusts. Tillman says that when we, when people trade away the God of creation for other gods, they also trade away the design of God's creation for a parody of that design. When the Bible starts talking about lust, it's trying to draw you in, Sam Marbury say, to turning someone's sexuality into a commodity. And if the first consequence of true suppression, sexual immorality, if that was general, this gets more specific. There won't just be a cheapening of one another's bodies and sexuality, but there will be disordered desires from within. Essentially, you will want things for your bodies that are beneath you and the other human made in God's image. It's like, man. Where did did it even come from? Something. There's a consequence even in the internal processing. When Paul says that, verse 26, women exchanged their natural sexual relations, it's a swapping out. So he's saying that women exchanged the standard method to fill sexual desires with something contrary to their nature. Natural just means it, it pertains to that which is in accord with the nature of the character of something, right? I, I, I am not uh, someone who is a, um, you know, I was gonna get the right word, but I ain't got it, you know? I don't do fishes, you know what I'm saying? Um, I imagine that there are fish who could swim in other things besides water, maybe other liquid, maybe not, but it would be like trying to put, maybe they can. Maybe they can swim in apple juice. I'm going to see. Some of y'all probably got in trouble for that. I'm going to see if Nemo can swim in apple juice. And your mama came home to the aquarium and was like, why is Nemo out of the aquarium? And you had Nemo in the, in the Mountain Dew Soda, trying to see if he could swim. When it was natural, the natural habitat is the salt water. It's the fresh water, right? This is what Paul is drawing in. There's a natural order by the designer. There's a way to have our sexual uh, needs and desires fulfilled. This is not it. In the same way, men also abandon natural relations with women. Some people would look at this particular text and say, oh, this is not referring to uh, homoeroticism or homosexuality. This is about pedophilia, right? There's no inclination in scripture, no justification for why this would be narrow. It is what it is. There is a natural way that because we have suppressed the truth, our minds have given us over to defunctive reasoning, and now we are choosing to forsake the natural ways that we get sex gratified with alternatives. Let me make it crystal clear for you. Sexual intimacy outside of covenant marriage between a man and a woman, for the glory of God, is not a part of God's good design for his world. It just is what it is. Sexual intimacy outside of covenant marriage between a man and a woman, for the glory of God, is not a part of God's good design for creation. I'm not asking you, Christian, to say that and beat your chest. I'm not asking you, Christian, to yell at your friends and post on Facebook and tag everybody who you know don't, who don't live. I'm not asking you to do that, but I'm also asking you not to be
1: ashamed of it. You don't, we don't need you to be a jerk. We don't need you to fix the world. He gonna do that.
0: All we're asking you to do is not be ashamed of it. Yeah, that's actually what I believe. And I actually believe it's right.
1: So let's exegete the culture.
0: Why is that so freaking inflammatory? Why are you gonna have a whole conniption When your friends say, what's your pastor preach about today? (laughs) Girl, I got to call you back. (laughs) (laughs) Because we all know it is. We know some people in this room, people have not spoken to you for years because of how you feel about these things. There's been serious fractures. Why is that? Say, Matt, I worked really hard on my circle. I had to pull Big West. Who else came up here last week? Who else? Jamel? Shoot. My boy. I mean, my, my fellas did good when they did my little circle. That was good. That right? was good. But I worked on something. Come on. Hey, look at that. Pastor Tim. Hey. Well, I don't even need Thea no more. I got this. <laughs> Boom. This is what it was supposed to look like but I had some technical difficulties. Let's exegete our culture. Remember, we said that if the circle is a worldview, it's it's our ethos, it's how we look and understand our world, that essentially, inevitably, there are gaps, there are holes in that circle. And so what we have done since the beginning of time is we've tried to fill those gaps, okay? And so in in prehistoric, you know, society and maybe even, you know, all the way up until uh, the Enlightenment, the way that we filled the gaps in our worldview was, hey, man, if there was something that happens unexpectedly, must be transcendent. It must be we've got to give the culpability to the one who's creating and orchestrating things. So God filled in the gaps of the things that we couldn't wrap our head around. But what has happened, right, is as we gained more intelligence and we started to understand refrigeration, we said, "Mm, you know, it's probably not good for you to eat roast beef. A month after you cooked it so we gonna create some ways to preserve food and so we don't need to fill the food preservation gap with God anymore we know better we brother you can just put that in the refrigerator or you should probably throw it away amen don't judge me I'm all about the smell test I don't even use dates no more I'm just like yeah, that's good, that's good. we can do it we can do it. We can do it. I, yeah, it's probably right. I had a rough experience with KFC. I'll tell you all about that later. That's bad. That's bad. That was, was a chink in my armor. But essentially, what, what that has done, in a good way, sometimes I'd be the first to admit to you, something, sometimes we put things on God that wasn't Him. Sometimes y'all got a cold, and you got COVID. And you say, the enemy was attacking me. It's like, no, you went to an unmasked party and everybody was breathing on each other and you got COVID. That's what happened to you, okay? Sometimes we have put things on God that wasn't God, right? I'll be the first person to admit that. But as we, in God's common grace, as he's allowed us to understand more about himself and the world that he's created, one of the things that we've done is as we have rightly filled in gaps with maybe some technological and scientific achievements, now we've started to fill gaps more with that when we should have been God. And he loses a little bit of transcendence. And he loses a little bit of the ability to be the one who defines the mystery. Because we can figure it all out by ourselves. So there was science and enlightenment. But then the romantics came onto the scene. People like Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And we start to get into this idea of expressive individualism, which kind of defines our generation. So let me just take you on a brief journey. I used a lot. There's a great book um, that I would just recommend to you. It is not... One of those books that you get at Lifeway and you just read as a devotion over coffee in the morning. That's not, this book that I'm by Carl Truman is not that kind of book. It's a a good book that you want to sit and you just want to wrap your mind around. It's not very much, hey Christian, here's what you should do. But it, it really is a good cultural analysis and exegesis. It's trying to help you understand why we think the way we think as a society. The book is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Resolution by Carl Truman. And in the book, Truman is just going to argue that cultural developments over the past three centuries really have transformed our conception of selfhood, what it means to be a self, from a self that's rooted in religion, tradition, and community, to one that's rooted in individualism, emotion, and sexuality. That's where we are as a culture. We came from a world where your identity kind of came from uh, uh, religion, tradition, and community. Now, the values, who you are, is really uh, individualism, emotion, and sexuality. He's got these two kind of uh, uh, competing ideals, mimesis and poesis. And so a mimetic view regards the world as having a given order and given meaning and thus sees human beings as required to discover that meaning and conform themselves to it. That's a mimetic view. That's where we kind of come from. Poesis is, by way of contrast, sees the world as so much raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. This is kind of more where we sit now. Used to be our community defines us and there was a transcendent order that we had to get in line with, right? Now it is more, hey man, We can be whoever we wanna be. It's raw material, I'll just create my own reality. There's a guy named Charles Taylor, philosopher that Truman borrows from. And he starts talking about this concept of social imaginary. And what social imaginary is, it's just The way people think about their their world and how they imagine it to be, how they actually intuitively react in it, right? So it's like, you know, my kids, we've never given our kids a handbook on what it means to be a Johnson. But over 15, 16 years of being a Johnson, they just kind of intuitively know how we do things. You need to know you have been formed By living on this planet two, three, and four, and five decades, there's a way that you intuitively move throughout this world that nobody had to put you in a classroom and teach you. You just know how to do it. And so one of the basic premises Truman uses in this book is this idea, this statement of how if someone were to say in our class setting, our work setting, or if your kid came home and said, hey mom, guess what uh, uh, Sheila said at school, It that she feels like she's a woman trapped in a man's body. We wouldn't shudder at that statement. But if that statement would've been uttered 100 years ago, everybody would've been running around crazy. Why is that? It's because we've been formed. We don't think that's abnormal anymore. Because there's social cues and there's ways we move in this world that we just understand. Nobody had to teach us. Your kid knows not to say when, when they see somebody at the, uh, in the school and they got on Air Force Ones, but they got on a halter top and they got pink hair and they got on football pads. Your kid just knows. I bet not say nothing. Even though they're like, mm, that's different. But intuitively, they know the rules of our society. And it wasn't always that way. That's not to say it's good or better. That just means to say we are being formed and we already know. Nobody needs to explain things to us. Because why? We are in a society marked by expressive individualism. What does that mean? That each of us, take a picture. Each of us finds our own meaning by giving expression to our own feelings and desires. That's inherently what it means to be a part of the 21st century West. Period. Step on that if you want to. There's going to be some bodies moving. You know, I grew up, uh, I remember um, sending my dad off or whenever he came back from the Gulf War. And they were playing, I'm proud to be an American. We well, at least that know I'm free. That was my favorite song, boy. Sure, you're going to tell me that. Yes, and I gladly stand up. That was my song right there, boy. Love that jump. And so this idea, the Tocqueville, this idea of freedom, right, that used to be, used to be inherently American, I think it's shaping, it's shifting a little bit, right? This is the idea of what it means to be a part of the West. It means like, yo, I define myself by how I feel and what I desire. And you won't step on that. Philip Reef goes on to, he builds off this idea of expressive individualism. And he has the idea of the psychological man. And it's a, a person that's characterized not so much by finding identity in the outward directed activities as tr- was true for previous types, but rather in the inward request for personal psychological happiness.
1: The only thing that validates my existence is in my living in accord with how I feel and what I desire.
0: Which is why when you end up, Truman says this, when you end up in a culture where expressive individualism is leading the day as who we define ourselves to be, He says, earlier generations might have seen damage to your body or damage to property as the most serious category of crimes. But he says, a highly psychologized era will accord increasing importance to words as a means of oppression. Just read it one more time. When you end up, I'm not saying that what I, I do not believe in a golden age of humanity. I don't believe in one being better or greater or worse than the other. It would have been just as hard to live 400 years ago as it is now being to live another 400 years, right? It's still going to be brokenness until we get to new heavens, new earth. But I, this is just an objective statement. That whereas earlier generations may have seen damage to the body as the most serious of crimes, a highly psychologized era will accord increasing importance to words as a means of oppression. I'll knock you upside the head, but tell me I'm not who I think I am, and you have mortally wounded me. Because as a psychologized society, it is our feelings and our desires that are of highest honor. Psychological man and expressive individualism shape the dominant understanding of what it means to be a full human self in this present age, Truman says. And here's the last one. And the refusal by any individual to recognize an an identity that that society at large recognizes as legitimate is a moral offense. It's not simply a matter of indifference. The question of identity in the modern world is a question of dignity.
1: There are several things
0: that I could've hit you with today to substantiate biblical ethics and try to point to the beauty of it. I want every eyeball on me. I know, and it's not your fault, the era that you were born into. I know you were born into a time, space, and history that values feelings and desires above anything else. It is the ultimate mark. But I want to tell you something really clear about the gospel and the God who made you. is that my brother and sister... It's not your sexual preference that gives you dignity. It's not where you were born that gives you dignity. It's not the color of skin that gives you dignity. My brother and sister, the creator of the universe, gave you inherent dignity and value and worth before you even knew what you were sexually attracted to.
1: Because he's got a high view of you and your body. Do not
0: fall victim to the lies of this culture. There is a creator that says, when I got done with you, it was good. No matter who you fall in love with, no matter who you share your bed with, no matter who you are attracted with, he looked at you and said, you are good. What are the typical responses as we handle sexual immorality and we try to wrestle with the biblical um, sexual ethics? Here are the typical responses demonization. You know it. Gina and I were a part of worship services where. An unknown person would say, hey, man, and God is against sexual immorality. And people would literally get up where we were and say, no more sissies, no more sissies. The most deplorable thing I've ever been a part of. But it's us. It's our people. And in the same way that we want them white folks to say it was our people, we got to say it was our people. Don't struggle with it. It was our people. We have demonized the sin, right? It's unredeemable. And what purity culture did for us, it took us another step further. It took, listen, because some of y'all struggle with it, it took the proper biblical sexual ethic, proper biblical sexual ethic in most cases, but what it did, it started attaching dignity to sin it started actually attaching worth to sin oh you're fornicating your trash oh no
1: big mistake big mistake
0: just because you sin does not at all mean you are worthless and just because God might have given you over to a debased mind does not mean you're unredeemable y'all And so the counter reaction was, oh my God, we got to throw away purity culture. It's like, well, wait a minute, purity culture actually had some good things going on. Just made a little mistake, a big mistake. Concession. Some of y'all are in this room right now, and you've already conceded the authority and infallibility of Scripture to other philosophies in different times and generations. You're like, oh yeah, you know what? Romans 1 is not true, it's just... You know, it was written in the first century, and Paul didn't know what was coming, and, you know, and it's a different time. You've conceded. Some of us have relativized things. I had to come to this in my views on continuationism and cessationism. It's like, oh, man, I had a conviction about continuationism. I believe in some gifts. But I wouldn't offer that to nobody. I'd be like, it's okay, whatever y'all do over there, it's, it's fine with y'all. Whatever. That's what y'all do, I just do. Some of, all, some of us have kind of relativized our biblical sexual ethic. It's like, You know your conviction, and you do believe it's right, but you won't open your mouth, will you? We got to come back, y'all. This is why I think this whole thing started with don't be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel isn't just about justification. It's about a whole new world order. It's about a whole way of living and flourishing underneath his reign. I threw this in here because I think I just got to say it too. You know, there's a lot of business about how we identify do some of us in the room who struggle with same-sex attraction, do we say, oh, yeah, I'm a gay Christian? I'm not going to mix it up about that. But I will say this. A Christian is a lifelong follower India. Girl, you better let me make my point. <laughs> a Christian is a lifelong follower of Jesus. Who's committed to bringing all our disordered desires to him for cleansing and renewal? Our life's primary aim is to see him glorify in all that we say and do. I'm gonna say it slow. I meant to put it up there, but I forgot, to say Matt. Shoot. I, you know, you know how I do. I just forgot. Are you, what you doing? You about to grab it? Oh, okay, that's right. I don't even know what to do. I'm gonna read it slow. I do. I want y'all to think about it and or write it down, whatever you want to do. But this is what it means to be a Christian. It's a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ who's committed to bringing all of our disordered desires to him for cleansing and renewal. All of them, our bad attitudes, our lethargy, our anxieties, we bring it all to him to cleanse us and renew us. And our primary aim in life is to see him glorified in all that we say and do. I don't care which letters you may or may not use to identify yourself or what you put before Christian. We might disagree on that. We better not disagree on what it means to be a disciple. If you don't think you need cleansing and renewal, maybe you might not be a Christian. I don't care what you call yourself. This is what all of us signed up for. We not worthy. You're worthy. We're broken. We need fixing. We are rebellious. We submit to your will and your way. I don't care what you call yourself. If you call yourself a Christian, you better be on that time. Someone like to fool ourselves. I'm a black Christian. I'm a Republican Christian. I don't care. I don't care what modifier you put in front of Christian. If you ain't talking about dying to self, you ain't Christian. So what's the hope of the gospel? I think Romans 1 is so much bigger than damnation. Romans 1 is really about not just about punishment, but it's about a missed opportunity to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment underneath his reign. That's what it's about. It's like, yo, yes, man, there's wrath coming, but you can can be fulfilled. You can be satisfied if you get your life rightly ordered. That's what I want to give you. Ecclesiastes says that we've been born with eternity in our heart. Augustine says, you know, our hearts won't be satisfied until we find our satisfaction in him. What it's saying is, listen to me, y'all. What you need to know about your friend, they're trying to dodge it. But their ultimate yearning is not sexual, it's spiritual, y'all. They trying to evade that thing like, you know, Floyd Mayweather. Uh Uh-uh. You just trying to deny my feeling. No, 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 my friend. I know you want something. And I want to tell you, it doesn't matter if you sleep with that man, that woman, two of them, three of them. It won't fulfill you. You're really looking for the one who made you to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. That's the life from our culture our culture says that if you're not sexually fulfilled you can't be complete as a human being see jesus see paul it just doesn't compute we're more than just sexual beings we're, more, we're we it's a part of us we're all sexual but we're so much more than that let's talk about judgment heterosexuality doesn't send you to heaven It's going to be a whole bunch of heterosexual people burning up. Dang, bro. But I wasn't gay. But you in hell. Let me just tell you real quick. Hell don't discriminate, y'all. It don't, bro. It don't. So we better move on from that. We better move on. In the same matter, you don't go to, listen at me, You don't go to hell because you're attracted to men. You don't go to hell because you're attracted to women. You go to hell because you disagree with God on what is good and what's right.
1: That's why you're not right.
0: We believe in absolute truth And indiscriminate grace to all who repent and come to him in faith. We hold both of those things in tension. All these sexual sins, they were in these verses and they were there two times. But they're all redeemable. Essentially, you're not condemned if you fall. You're condemned for true suppression and failure to repent. Because you got to remember, Christianity is not about, that's Christianity 101. It's not about us cleaning ourselves up and coming to God and saying, look how good I'm living now. It's about us being in constant amazement at his mercy. It's like, did you just see what I just did? And he's like, yeah, I paid for that. And we're like, that's not fair. And he's like, but I did it. And we're like, see, that's why I want to serve you. Because I'm just living on time that is undeserving. I'm experiencing grace and empowerment that I do not deserve. And I want to serve you. There's no other God. There's no other person who would give me what you've given me. But here's the thing. I
1: thought I was just thinking about this.
0: So if the cross says it's indiscriminate. It doesn't matter what you've done, how many folks you slept with, if you slept with the same sex, if you fantasize about the same sex. It doesn't matter. It's all redeemable.
1: Jesus says, It doesn't matter. I'm not
0: ashamed of your background. I'll forgive it all. And if the only reason why you won't accept that forgiveness is because you just don't believe He's right, then what else?
1: What else can He do? He'll forgive everything.
0: Literally anything, but your beef with God is you just don't believe he's right. So what else? what 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 do you want him to do?
1: What do you want him to do? There is
0: nothing you could bring to him that would make him repulse. There is nothing, oh, I did this. He wouldn't shudder. As a matter of fact, he just dripped some fresh blood on you. Paid for. (laughs) But God, I still think about paid for. But the only reason you'd be willing to stand on the outside is to fight over who's right.
1: What else do you want him to do? I thought about some white man who would have been born in 1700s in Virginia,
0: just born into a system, an economic system where they profited off the backs of people who were
1: not from that land. I was like, man, you know, well, that stink.
0: That wasn't his fault. He just was born in Virginia at that time, and that, all that stuff was normalized. How was he supposed to know? The guy's like, oh, it's okay. It don't matter. I'll forgive you for it. Can you just acknowledge that forcing people to work under these conditions is sin? And I could just imagine that dude
1: just standing there. I know
0: you've been born into a society from the time your eyeballs could recognize things moving across the screen. You have been watching movies from Disney about be whoever you want to be. That wasn't your fault. I'm just praying that at the right time, when the Holy Spirit quickens your mind, that you would have enough
1: strength to just say, you're right. I was wrong. I do not have the right to do whatever I want to with my body or my sexuality. Here's the good news though. Some of y'all have been entangled in this web,
0: 40-year-old black dude, swag. I buzzed myself in the teeth one time, so that's, oh, Jesus. Clark, I should probably cut that one. We were reading uh, Luke 8, just about the demoniac, and just a metaphor for what it means to be ensnared in a system of sin, in the majesty and the magnificence of how God can free you. I know you are sitting in this audience today, some of you all, and you are desperately wanting to be free from the entanglement that has come from true suppression and defunct reasoning and a society that has normalized your brokenness. We're going to take communion, but we're going to stay around and I just wanna pray with you. Because the good news of the gospel is not that just you have to just, oh man, I'm just gonna be like this forever. Sex addict, masturbator, doesn't matter. I still believe in deliverance. I still believe that Jesus can break chains. And who's to know that on some fall Sunday in 2023, the Lord in his sovereign wisdom and mercy had that date assigned to you to break that thing. I was preaching in Philadelphia. So brother came back. He was like, brother, I just, Pastor, I just want to thank you. You have no idea. Before I walked in this church, I smoked multiple blunts a day. When you preach the word, I believe God freed me that day. I just still believe. I didn't even lay my hands on the brother. Just the word going forth. Break chains. I'm going to catch my breath.
1: Matt's going to get us ready for the table.